Human incentives are an interesting thing. I've been chatting with my buddies across the pond, and they're just reevaluating the way they look at the cost of things. Like, for example, one of them is looking at buying a television, and the thing he's looking at now is what is the power draw of that television? Not what is the main price of the television, but I want around this size, what's the power draw? Because, well, energy prices are so high right now, and the incentive has shifted, and what they're looking at maybe isn't the specs of the screen as much it is as the draw because of the cost of the energy. It's that shift in incentives. It's interesting. I wonder if that's the right way to price things, because I feel like sometimes we overprice certain things, like people get very concerned about power draw when power is really expensive. But realistically, how long will power be that expensive? So you need a model, like a cost model that sort of takes the upfront cost and then rolls that in with the cost of operation. Right. But that model would have to somehow know how the macroeconomic situations are going to play out and then affect the price of energy. If we had that model, we could be answering a lot of other questions. But incentives are king. And I found this interesting story about a police department in St. Anne, Missouri. And this police department has had an issue with creating injuries in the community because they have been doing high-speed chases, where they chase people in cars, and these chases get very reckless. And in 2017, 11 people were injured in 19 crashes associated with the police department. And so there'd been some community desire for the police department to stop doing these cases, because the argument was, listen, if you are causing this many car accidents, chasing people is more dangerous than letting them run away. Like, you need to let them run away and find a more controlled way to talk to people or apprehend them or something. And the police department had been resisting this. And just for context, you know, I'm not really taking a political side on this issue. At the same time, I would say I'm your Bitcoin dad. I'm a safety stickler. I think everybody is a safety officer. And I've worked in industrial facilities before where if one person got hurt, our entire facility would have been shut down for at least one day. And frankly, I think that's a very reasonable approach to doing business. Because if you allow profits and other incentives to trump safety, it spirals. Well, things changed for this police department because their insurer basically said, you want to do this kind of dangerous behavior, you're going to have to pay for it. And they started (laughs) increasing the amount of money, basically the town needed to pay to get insurance coverage for their officers. And like that, bing, the police department has changed their policy. And so at the end of the day, it's really about incentives. And sometimes those incentives are financial. Sometimes those incentives are otherwise. But I think that it's really these costs on our behavior that force us to make changes. They say, the city officials say, we didn't really have a choice. If we didn't do it, the insurance rates were going to go way up and we would have to lose 10 officers to pay for the new insurance bill. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. And that's exactly what the, not to make it sound like, you know, it's a big managed economy, but I think that's the things that uh, Powell and his buddies sort of count on is if they shift the incentives in the market by increasing rates and things like that, the second order effects that come from that will be what people do based on the new incentive structure. Assuming they can shift incentives. Right. Yeah, well, that's exactly it. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Saturday, September 17th, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here as always with... Oh, uh, me? Hi, I'm Chris. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back, Chris. I mean, back to the online office. Yeah, the virtual office in the metaverse. Uh, No, okay, maybe not. We are all NFTs now. (laughs) How did I get a microphone NFT? That's an interesting one. I'll have to figure that out. Why is there a very shoddy model of Versailles behind me? And why do I have dead computer-generated eyes? Thanks, Zuck. (laughs) Today's episode is going to be short on the news and heavy on, is it education when we have a debate, maybe? But in economics, we're covering a fascinating paper from the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta that determines quantitative easing is basically useless. Another nice piece of local Federal Reserve Bank punching the central bank's official policy in the face with research. In tokenomics, we are unfortunately or fortunately going to cover the merge, the Ethereum merge, the transition to proof of stake. We're going to wrap it up and I think it's finally clicked for us. So we finally have an opinion about the merge and we we think we know why it happened and who benefits. In energy, we have Nick Carter's promised annotations of the White House crypto report. There's a lot of energy FUD in there, but it's not all bad. At the same time, the major source of the report is a bad one. I mean, data for the report. It's Digiconomist, and that guy's a joke. Then in Bitcoin education, we're going to debate tarot versus drive chains. Which project to bring altcoins on Bitcoin will succeed? Then we have a very little 
little bit of feedback because our show node has been down for five days. That's your dad's fault. I'm building in an uptime Kuma monitoring system, which should alert me if we have problems in the future. So we have a few boosts, but not too many. So it'll be a nice, tight episode. We'll see about that. (laughs) Shall we hop into this news from the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta? I would love to. I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I think one of my favorite things on the show is these, I guess, state feds just coming out with these reports that totally call out the Federal Reserve. I didn't realize before this show this was going on like this. And so this week we have one from the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, and they kind of go after the quantitative tightening that the Fed's entering into and how that's essentially going to equivalent to a pretty significant rate hike. Or pretty insignificant. I mean, what's really, really interesting is that the U.S., for all of its flaws, has this interesting distributed model of states versus central government. And even the Federal Reserve Bank is a system of federated banks with the New York Fed taking the lead. And we've been finding a lot of really interesting novel research coming out of the regional Federal Reserve Banks, research that casts doubt on the efficacy of official monetary policy. Cast doubt? I mean, you could even say it's almost dissent, because if, if you consider how gentile and polite this field is and the structure here, this is like coming out and saying the opposite of what the New York Fed is saying in a lot of cases. The other thing is how the report is covered. So I think that the way that this report, if it even showed up in any sort of media coverage, was presented was the Federal Reserve has analyzed quantitative easing and quantitative tightening, and they have established that it has a statistically significant effect similar to interest rates. So if you say it that way, then you can say, oh, yeah, well, these policies, they're very scientific. But the kicker is that there's no data on quantitative tightening because it's never really happened in the modern world. We've only been in a quantitative easing situation. And we'll define these terms in a moment. So what they do is they look at quantitative easing and then they flip the data around and say, well, if we do that in the opposite, it'll have the same effect-ish and therefore (laughs) it'll be quantitative Uh, tightening. Okay. Let's just review. What does quantitative easing mean? And this is a term that came, I think it was first coined by Richard Werner in his book, The Princes of the Yen. It described what the Bank of Japan was doing in the 90s when it started to purchase large amounts of government debt and issue bank reserves to the entities that held that debt. So basically, it took debt from banks and financial institutions, and it gave them bank reserves. And this was supposed to somehow loosen credit conditions because you were taking bonds and transforming them into a more liquid type of money. That was the idea, at least. And then so the banks, in theory, then have more money to play with, so they're looser with it. Is that the idea? That's the idea. And it turns out that this understanding is completely wrong because these bank reserves that are being produced, they're not like regular money. They can really only be used to satisfy obligations to the central bank. And as such, it's an inferior form of money than what we think of as money, which is ultimately physical bills that we deposit into a bank. And then they become these sort of digital bank deposits. And now we can use these digital bank deposits to pay for credit cards or borrow or whatever. Can I interrupt just for a second? So just why so I have this, this is actually something I didn't really appreciate. You're right. So they're not actually dealing in cash between the central bank and the bank that's purchasing at all. It's not actual cash. And so you're not actually, like say, increasing the cash supply either in that transaction. Exactly. And so I don't think quantitative easing is money printing. It's creating something called bank reserves and the central banks say bank reserves are money. But if we look at financial markets, bank reserves are clearly not money because they're not a medium of exchange a store of value or a unit of account. I mean, no one talks about bank reserves. They talk about dollars or euros or even euro dollars. So the interesting thing is this paper doesn't really get into the fundamental question of what is money? What are you producing? Instead, what they're doing is they're taking a Fed model, which is called a preferred habit model, and they're fitting data from rising and falling interest rates and quantitative easing into this model 
and trying to interpret how quantitative tightening will affect the market. And it's pretty esoteric. I think it's sort of a waste of time. It's, it's like trying to put a very chaotic, complicated system into a simple model. Is that going to give you useful data? I don't think so. But what their conclusion is, is that if you were to roll off, you know, basically reduce the Federal Reserve's balance sheet over three years by $2.2 trillion, it would be an equivalent to an increase of 0.29 basis points. That's an interest rate increase of 0.29%. So basically, $2 trillion buys you almost 0.3% interest rates. And so flipping this on its head, what it means is that quantitative easing, when you actually bought these treasuries, had a tiny effect on interest rates, as quantitative tightening also has a tiny effect on interest rates as you sell these assets. Yet quantitative easing has been this huge marketing campaign of how the Federal Reserve, the central banks are doing so much, you know, they're managing the whole economy and all of this stuff. But if the US Federal Reserve balance sheet is only, and I say only sarcastically, about $7 trillion, that means that that whole balance sheet, that $7 trillion, all it managed to do was reduce effective interest rates by nearly 1%. So it's nothing. It's like this data suggests that the central tenets of modern central bank policy are basically useless. This kind of might go back to your theory that a lot of times it's just setting expectations in the market. And so perhaps they're savvy enough to realize that people are watching this balance sheet. People are concerned about this balance sheet. So now they can make a production out of reducing that balance sheet. And uh, people respond in exactly the way they expected them to respond. Yeah, exactly. I think that Jeff Schneider is being proven right time and time again that the central banks don't really want to understand how the monetary system works because when you understand it, you realize that what they're doing is a performance. They can't really control money creation because money creation really happens through credit creation. And credit creation happens in the private sector. It doesn't happen in the public sector. And that means that central banks aren't central. They're more like appendix banks. They're this ancillary <laughs> part of the system and they can't really influence how private entities lend. Well, they can right. actually. The, 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 well, yeah. the Bank of Japan managed to get private banks to lend in the 80s by literally telling them, you need to lend or we will take away your bank charter. Right. Obviously, this... Yep blew a huge financial bubble. So central banks seem to be very good at blowing financial bubbles, not so good at managing the economy in a non-speculative way. Now, you almost can almost feel bad for them because they can't control government spending. Even in an obvious inflationary environment, spending continues and they can't control the supply chain and they can't really control energy producers. <laughs> and they they don't really have much power. And so you kind of feel for them. And yet it makes me just realize how irrelevant all of this is. And I hope, I hope in a hundred years or so, we'll look back and think how weird it was that, that, you know, this group of people tried to set the price of money and tried to pretend like they controlled the whole monetary system when really it's a micro universe that no one controls. A hundred percent. It's almost as if, if we just had a neutral monetary medium that no one was managing, we could stop following the news of what Jay Powell had for breakfast and stop getting distracted with all this noise and focus on actually living our lives and doing productive things. And that would probably be better. If only there was something that fulfilled that. You know, it's really all about sustainability, Dad, and the world of crypto has been waiting for a recalibration towards sustainability, one that not only optimizes the value position that crypto and blockchain applications present, but also for Web3 climate innovators. That's why we're so excited here on the pod about the merge. Those are direct words taken from the WHO, who is super excited about the merge. The World Economic Forum is hyped. They're on, you know, and they're also uh, buddy buddies with consensus, so it all makes sense. Yeah, what exactly is the World Economic Forum, I wonder? <laughs> Haven't we all wondered what the World Economic Forum is and what Carl and his buddies are doing? They sure love to have big parties and fly everybody in on private jets to go up on stage and talk about climate change. I know they do a lot of that. Klaus Schwab, right? Yeah, this is Klaus Schwab's organization. Yeah, they're the ones that said uh, you'll own nothing and be happy about it. And they're hyped about the merge. How do you feel about that? Doesn't that kind of, doesn't that tell you everything you need to know <laughs> right there? I didn't understand that all of the conspiracy theories about the World Economic Forum are basically <laughs> rooted in reality. They literally created a Great Reset initiative. Yeah, they, Carl's, I, I own it. Carl's published a book about the Great Reset. I bought it off Amazon because it's a collector's item as far as I'm concerned. Oh my gosh. So they're really stoked. Um, they're so stoked that uh, they'll fly you out to some awesome party location and uh, get you up on stage to talk about how important ESG is. So, you know, they're big on this stuff and 
And um, I believe um, they do have an active relationship with Consensus, the company that is really behind MetaWallet and Ethereum and that stuff. Right. And um, so we're just bringing this up because we've been trying to wrap our heads around why do proof of stake. And there are links in the show notes. There's a video from someone called Check on Chain, who also has a really good um, Twitter account with a lot of data there and a link to a Substack, which has an article called The Bitcoiner's Guide to Proof of Stake. And if you look at these resources, you'll understand that proof of stake is objectively worse for creating a robust decentralized system than proof of work. And it's worse because proof of work has a non-subjective way to determine the truth of the history of Bitcoin. If someone presents you with multiple versions of Bitcoin history, you just look at the version that has the most work and that's the true version. So this is a very simple, objective, easy to verify system. You can literally verify it on a Raspberry Pi, which is a very small computer, though there's currently a debate as to whether Raspberry Pis are good Bitcoin nodes right now. I think I'm on the probably not because they they were good when they were cheap, but they're no longer cheap. Yeah, there's that. The real complaint, though, is speed. Yeah, the the IO bottleneck is pretty bad. So proof of stake, on the other hand, introduces subjective truth into your system in order to sync a new proof of stake node, you need to find a trusted source for the history of the proof of stake chain. And the reason that's the case is that there's no simple metric like work that tells you what the true history is. Proof of stake is in every sense a permissioned system. When you stake coins, you become part of a permissioned group of validators who are granted the opportunity to validate blocks. And so really the only benefit of a system like this is that you eliminate the need for electricity to generate work for this system. Except maybe you don't because friend of the show, Paul Storks, I'm just saying that, I'm assuming he'll like us, has written about how proof of stake is actually the incentives of it devolve into an inefficient proof of work type consensus. And there's a lot of complexity in trying to prevent that outcome on the Ethereum side. But, you know, complexity is dangerous. And so, like, (laughs) however you look at it, proof of stake just seems at its face to be a very bad idea. Before it even took effect. And I think that's something to point out. And to run an Ethereum node, by the way, it's no simple task. It requires a massive machine that consumes probably about as much power as a Bitcoin miner. I grant you there'll be less of them. I'd argue that might not be a good thing. I think before we saw the merge happen, we saw USDC essentially already has voting power. So Circle and Coinbase, whatever they support with USDC, that's going to become the de facto Ethereum chain. So now you have a chain decider before the merge is complete. Before the merge is complete, you have four companies that are essentially in control, most of which are U.S. companies, so they're controlled by the U.S. government. And before the merge is complete, we have seen all of this, including the what-if question happens where Ethereum has to make the decision if they're going to slash Coinbase or Kraken funds if they refuse to validate maybe something the U.S. government, the Treasury Department, blocks. We've already seen they don't have a good answer to that before the merge has taken place. Let's just sum up what we think are the principles of proof of stake and proof of work before we move on. So what are the principles of proof of stake? Well, proof of stake uses negative incentive structures. It's all penalty based. If you stake in that system, you are going to be at risk of losing your funds if you do something that the system doesn't like. And so miners in proof of stake or validators, they are essentially in a state of fear, which in my view doesn't make them a censorship resistant force because if an upgrade comes out, they need to apply that as soon as possible so that their stake doesn't get slashed. Proof of stake is also a permission system. There's a limited number of spots for validators and all the people with lots of Ethereum have already taken all those slots. And you, you can only sort of enter as a new validator when an old validator leaves. I mean, it's it's a club. And there's a pre-mine factor here as well. There's been a bunch of insiders who got huge, ginormous bags. And for them, 32 ETH is nothing. It's nothing for them. The pre-mine comes into the real reason why proof of stake is the goal. Because, you know, proof of stake has no rules. There's no subjective truth to the history of proof of stake. And you've created a system where money is power. Well, if we want a system that's permissioned, has no rules, has no source of absolute truth, and money is power, you know, we've got the existing financial system. (laughs) I've just described it pretty well. Whereas with a proof of work system, you know, it's it's basically the mirror opposite. We have an incentive-based system where if mining makes you money, you mine. If it doesn't make you money, you don't mine. Here are financial incentives right there. 
It's also yeah. permissionless because you can stop and start mining at any time. Did we mention that with <laughs> proof of stake, not only are there a limited number of sort of validators, but also right now, if you start staking coins, there literally isn't a mechanism to unstake them. Yeah, that's right. If you start staking, you cannot get your money back out of that staking contract and you can't even get the staking rewards. This is actually a clue as to what is really going on here. Another thing with proof of work is that forks can be ignored. If someone forks the code, you can ignore that fork. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to save all that data. You don't have to deal with that complexity. But in proof of stake, because there are no rules, you don't know if the fork is right or the chain you're mining on is right. So there's this social element where you kind of have to be paying attention all the time to figure out what the true Ethereum is. Because again, there's no objective truth to which is the right chain. And in proof of work, there's always been this attack that says, oh, the miners control Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is centralized. Yet throughout Bitcoin's history, miners have attempted to take control of the network or push to bigger blocks or whatever, and they've gotten absolutely wrecked every day. So I would say that in Bitcoin, miners work for the network. And I might even go a step further and say they're basically the slaves to the network. It is not easy being a miner. It is a rough job. And your only choices are to mine or not mine. You don't get any political power, really. It's, it's, it's very difficult. Even censoring transactions is hard as a Bitcoin miner, whereas with proof of stake, eh, probably easier. I don't know. We'll see. That won't be long until we find out. Just yesterday, as we're recording on the 17th. The U.S. Treasury Department sanctioned more Ethereum addresses and a Bitcoin address this time. And this brings us to why would you want to do proof of stake if it has all these drawbacks? And by the way, Ethereum isn't the first chain that's done proof of stake. So did Solana and a lot of other worthless altcoins that nobody cares about. <clears throat> Luna. <clears throat> Well, I think the problem is the pre-mine or the pre-sale, however you want to call it. We've talked about on the show previously how there's analysis and it's honestly embarrassing. I can't find it because I, I read it and thought, man, we need to talk about this on the show and then never save the link. But if you look at the like the emission of Ethereum pre-sale coins, it's literally a mathematical curve. And that just does not happen in nature. You don't get mathematical curves like that in nature. What it means is there was a bot purchasing the Ethereum pre-sale according to a power our law chart, okay? Now, the most logical explanation for who was buying that was someone associated with the Ethereum Foundation. Why is that? Well, when you bought the presale, you sent Bitcoin to some address and you got Ethereum back. But the Ethereum that was produced when you sent Bitcoin to that address, 15% went to the initial dev team, which includes Vitalik. You know, 5% went to the Ethereum Foundation. So basically, you sent in Bitcoin, but you only got a fraction of the Ethereum that that produced because there were these insiders who were getting additional rewards, okay? And this is the kind of the altcoin problem. Well, here's the thing. What if that entity that you were sending the Bitcoin to could take that Bitcoin and send it to itself again? It could continually generate Ethereum for itself for free, right? Does that make sense? Nothing in Ethereum truly makes sense, but I'm following so far. Okay, and this is actually how Richard Hart, the hex scammer, created all this hex for himself because you can send... <laughs> Ethereum to a contract on Ethereum that produces the HEX ERC-20 token, but Richard controls that contract. So he can take the Ethereum out, send it back in, you know, just rinse and repeat. And so he can generate infinite HEX for himself and Ethereum insiders can generate essentially infinite Ethereum for themselves. Now they didn't generate infinite Ethereum, but they still generated what amounts to 60% of all Ethereum today and sold it to themselves. And what that means is it's very likely, I mean, we can't prove it, but it's incredibly likely, we can assume it's true, that there are mass Ethereum whales. Well, if you'll recall from our previous week episode, not previous, a few weeks ago, insiders always dump. Insiders always dump. So these Ethereum whales, they're insiders. They need to dump that Ethereum. But the fundamental problem is that Ethereum is tiny. I think it's easy to forget because we talk about it a lot, but Bitcoin is tiny too. Bitcoin is what? Not even a trillion dollars. Especially these days. Yeah, $400 billion. Bitcoin is smaller than the market cap of Microsoft. Okay, this is tiny in global terms. Yeah. And Ethereum is like one tenth the size of Bitcoin. So it's even tinier. It's it, it's nothing. So if you're an Ethereum billionaire, you cannot sell your Ethereum and get a healthy, diversified portfolio. Because remember, if you want to get rich, you concentrate your investment. If you want to stay rich, you diversify. So when someone gets rich from an ICO, they must diversify or they're going to end up pulling a Do Kwan and suddenly having nothing. So you need to diversify those insider bags. But how do 
do you dump? And this is why altcoins always fail, because you have these insiders who need to dump their huge bags of worthless altcoin, and they tank the price, and they kind of kill the market and kill interest in the process. Well, since 2017, every upgrade to Ethereum has had a liquidity-constraining aspect to it. And that's what's the key thing about the merge. The thing is not proof of stake. The thing about the merge is that, one, they reduce the mining rewards, so there's less issuance of new Ethereum. The change to proof of stake from proof of work changes miner incentives. Their idea is that miners have to sell Ethereum to power their GPUs and keep the lights on, but stakers, they don't because there's essentially zero cost to stake. So they'll just hold it. And if you create a staking contract that doesn't let you take your staking rewards out unless you unstake, and then you don't actually add the code to Ethereum that allows you to unstake, well, that means that for the next year to infinity, where there's literally no way to unstake your staked Ethereum, all new issuance is locked up. What does this mean? This means that the whales have convinced everyone who's drunk the Ethereum Kool-Aid to lock up their coins. Because if you don't lock up their coins, you're getting diluted by new issuance to stakers. But if you're a whale, you don't want more Ethereum. You're not going to lock up your coins. You want to sell. So you convince everyone who's not a whale to lock up their coins so they don't get diluted by new Ethereum issuance. And then they can't sell and you can dump to your heart's content. This is a pump and dump. This is exactly what happened during the Terra Luna crash. People couldn't sell because they had their Luna staked as the experiment was crashing. And you know, they'll be careful. They won't just sell it all at once, right? They'll sell it off in little bits here and there. They'll sell their way out and everybody will just be sat with their Ethereum there locked up. They'll be getting their stake derivatives. Yeah. And there are a lot of other negative incentives here. It really clicked to me when I was listening to an Ethereum shill talk about how great it was. And he lied a lot. He was saying how it's so easy to stake. You can stake on your MacBook Pro. And I'm just laughing because, well, if we look at the data, we can tell that less than 6% of stakers Right. are staking on their own. When you're staking and you fail to do so, the cost of that is significant, especially for those people that don't have very much. You get essentially penalized by having that Ethereum taken. And I don't, I say it's burned. Whereas you're less likely to have that happen, say, if you leave it at Coinbase. So the incentive structure of staking for the average pleb is to custodial your Ethereum with a service provider, as we're already seeing, obviously, with the top four. And it disincentivizes self-custodial Ethereum because then it's just sitting there wasting away. 100%. And also, in addition to the risk of staking on your own, when you stake with a big counterparty, they give you a derivative token which you can sell. And so you beat the staking lockup cost of not being able to sell your Ethereum by getting a derivative that maybe the market treats like Ethereum. And the way that these derivative coins work is that you want the derivative that most people have so you have the biggest market to sell or buy into. Well, guess what? That centralizes the staking. The logical end is basically one or two big staking pools on Ethereum that are completely regulated and completely in control of the government. And the big incentives of these companies like Coinbase and Kraken is to advertise the heck out of it and to promote education about it because now they're getting a big because not only are they getting a little bit of staking action and they get to hold your Ethereum and that makes them more powerful in the proof of stake network, but now they're also getting some action with this derivative and they're making money off of that. So they're into it, Ethereum's into it, the World Economic Forum's into it, everybody's getting their narratives checked and they all love it. And of course, the whales, the people that originally set all of this up are laughing all the way to the bank. I think that we'll be watching Ethereum for a while, but sort of a sad story. Maybe there's a moral here. I'm not sure. It's just, I find it frustrating because there's so much gaslighting around it. And it's this weird thing where a lot of people are really greedy about Ethereum because these pumponomics make it good for trading. Then you have these insiders who have to lie about the incentives of Ethereum or people People wouldn't be interested. And then you have this eternal September problem in the whole cryptocurrency ecosystem, which is we just have so many new people coming in all the time that basically the first community or project that you fall into becomes your crypto identity. And so a lot of people fall into even worse altcoins, and that's too bad. But at least with those terrible altcoins, they get wrecked quickly. Whereas Ethereum has just been trucking along, wrecking people slowly for years. Yeah. I don't know. I hope it becomes clear 
clear to the wider world what's really going on with Ethereum. But given its track record, probably it has a few years of BS left in it. I think, too, there's a market for a kind of gambly financial product like this. If you look at the stock market, the more I've learned about what a casino that is in the sense of all these derivatives and these futures and people just inevitably want something like this. They love to play with these kinds of things. And Ethereum gives them that. And if you want to say, okay, this is a software platform for financial products for a lot of financial speculation and things like that. And we just we just talked about it like that. Okay, all right, fair enough. But I think what as Bitcoiners gets us is in this World Economic Forum post that we started with, when you get about a paragraph or two down on the page, they include things like, have you also checked out, quote, you've heard of Bitcoin, but what about Ethereum? Also check out, quote, Bitcoin's biggest appeal might also leave it with a huge weakness. And the last one they leave here, quote, some simple Bitcoin economics, which I'm going to guess tell you that Bitcoin doesn't make sense. And they're always doing this. They're pushing, they're always pushing one and they're, they're drawing an equivalence here. There is no equivalence. This is not an alternative to Bitcoin. This is a financial product. In my opinion, it's a security. In fact, now it's a security more so than ever. And it's just a totally different thing. And the one thing that I'm left with wondering long-term is I believe the energy use is part of Bitcoin's fundamental value proposition. If Bitcoin was to crash to zero tomorrow, inevitably the mining operations have to cover their costs and it sets in a floor price for Bitcoin that they have to sell at or they're just not going to sell. And I think also, although I don't really know how to put it into words, but I think down the road we'll have a better appreciation, but there's something about converting a real valuable thing in reality, energy, something that's unique and scarce in the real world and converting that to a scarce digital asset, which we've never had before, a truly unique, scarce digital asset. We've always been able to have unlimited copies of digital things. Maybe we would use electricity to do it, but now we use electricity to create a unique digital item and that has a measurable cost. Ethereum doesn't have that really. I mean, you have the cost of the node operators, but most of that's on AWS. So that that math doesn't really work out. So like Coinbase could just drop all staking tomorrow and their operation would continue. This is just a net gain in profit for them. So I don't really understand now what sets the absolute floor price for Ethereum. There's no connection now to the real world of something valuable anymore. Yeah, I, I think that what we're sort of talking around is the idea that Bitcoin actually solves a pretty, quote unquote, simple problem, which is how do we just have a money thing that can't be centrally controlled and is sort of fair and neutral? And so we have some properties there. It has a finite supply, so we don't have to worry about inflation or who gets to benefit from the inflation. It has these uncensorable properties, so it acts like digital cash where you can always make a transaction and it's hard to prevent people from making transactions or censoring or controlling their behavior. Whereas Ethereum, they don't really have a clear goal or set of values. They pivot every couple of years. First, Ethereum was cheap transactions because when it came out, it had very little adoption and fast block speed, and therefore transactions were very cheap. Now, transactions are much more expensive than Bitcoin. Then Ethereum was a utility platform because in 2017, you could build all of your scammy ICOs on Ethereum very easily with little technical knowledge. And so Ethereum was the mother of all altcoins to sort of quote Safedine a moose on that. And then after the ICO boom exploded, Ethereum was this platform for DeFi. And then with this, I think, EIP 1551 enhancement that started burning minor rewards in a high demand environment, there was this meme that ETH is money and maybe ETH is ultrasound money. And so the answer is that the ETH community will say anything to justify the flavor of a day of ETH. It's all about driving interest, excitement, what's the hot new thing. And there's no consistency here. It's changed a lot since its genesis and it's changing again. You know, I don't think that we can look at the past and predict the future. However, looking at the present, what I see is a very good exit path for big holders. And generally speaking, when projects have their initial whales dump, they die. So let's see what happens with ETH. And a big congratulations, though, to the team. You know, they've they've pulled off some fantastic narrative. And after seven years, they finally got the merge done. And, uh, you know, just like Jared Polis, the governor of Colorado, sent out a tweet congratulating Vitalik and everyone on the team. And just like uh, Yuga Labs sent out a tweet congratulating everyone at the team behind Ethereum. You know, it's great to see a centralized team come together. And yeah, sounds like a startup or something. 
Yeah. It sounds like a centralized group of people who you're expecting to work towards you getting a return on an investment. But that's just, that's just, I, don't know, I don't know. But speaking of narratives, when the White House report on the climate implications of crypto mining came out, we didn't really want to get into it because our favorite venture capitalist, Nick Carter, said that he would. <laughs> And he has published a Medium post, and it's great. Let's go through the bright spots. So the White House, I think six months ago, said that they wanted to produce multiple reports on cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, and they published this report on proof of work. So it's not all bad, though most of it is. And there is an acknowledgement that proof of work and proof of stake do not grant identical assurances. Of course, they're not really certain if proof of stake is garbage or not. They seem to like the idea. So, okay, gray, not, not exactly positive or negative there. They also seem to acknowledge some interest in mining using flared gas. They acknowledge that there is some contribution to grid flexibility from Bitcoin mining, and they see the potential to exploit stranded renewable energy using mining. Now, what's the bad? Well, the report presents no new data. It basically ignores Bitcoin positive or Bitcoin neutral subject matter experts. The largest source of citation is DeVries, who is this guy who goes by Digiconomist, who's a blogger who works for the Dutch Central Bank, which is a pretty anti-Bitcoin organization, and publishes a lot of research which is not peer-reviewed, not logically consistent, and, and you know, basically FUD, in my opinion. They also cite the absurd Mora et al. 2018 report, and that is just such a joke of a paper. It's not peer-reviewed. It was literally written by undergraduates who had to write a paper quickly with very little background or research. And so the Mora paper is the one that predicts that Bitcoin is going to use all of global energy by 2035 or something because they conflate Bitcoin mining on a per transaction basis. And that's just not how Bitcoin mining works. So they imagine that every Bitcoin transaction requires, you know, a gigawatt of power or something ridiculous. It's weird they even dug that that study up and went with it. It, it seems like, it, you know, a simple Google search would have just, you know, double check, is this legitimate? <laughs> would have gotten them an answer. And Nick's paper is really good because there's a lot of links to great Bitcoin research, like the mining work done by CoinShares, Bitcoin Net Zero by Ross Stevens, and Arcane Research has a lot of research as well. I think we've uh, cited Arcane Research previously on the show. And a lot of this is aggregated by the Bitcoin Mining Council. But at the end of the day, the data sources aren't great. The conclusions are biased by those bad data sources. And on the plus side, it doesn't seem like this report is being used in support of any immediate policy. The whole thing's a bit lukewarm, frankly, which is good because it's such a joke that I think it would be difficult to perhaps push real policy based on such clearly flawed research. At the same time, at least we don't have to fight that, right? Yeah. In fact, I think that is the number one thing is that it just isn't super strong, but by existing and not coming on like super anti-proof of work or anti-Bitcoin, it almost by default opens up a path towards legitimization in the federal government and in Wall Street. Do you follow what I'm saying? Like, because it didn't raise a big stink, because it came in so lukewarm, it kind of sets the default. I think that energy policy is going to be more constrained by reality in the coming decade. And the reality is that you can have policies that just straight up ban Bitcoin mining from certain grids or certain activities. You can make that policy. But energy companies, grids, and consumers are under a lot of stress right now. And I think that's an environment where markets can find efficient solutions. And if it turns out that Bitcoin provides efficiencies to power producers and grids, it's going to be difficult fighting against that tug in a tight market where efficiency really, really matters, not just for pricing, but to keep national grids, industry, and individual citizens supplied with power and able to live productive lives. Yeah. Didn't we just make it through the summer without a rolling blackout in Texas Texas this year? That seems pretty significant. Yeah, congratulations. Congratulations to Texas. Yeah. Also, I think their weather was a bit better, right? They didn't have those surprise freezes. But they did have some serious heat for a bit. Um, some serious heat waves where they were really cranking the AC. I was worried. I really question the idea of building human civilization in deserts. 
I know. I just don't think that's going to work long term. You know, a lot of the mining operations down there who cooperated with the local power companies to shut down and supply extra power. And then when the consumers were done with that, the Bitcoin miners were there to pick that demand up, to keep it profitable for the grid to actually have that kind of supply. And they run them in oil down there. They submerge them in oil and then they uh, they actually use less power cooling them, even though they're in Texas. Like mineral oil? Yeah. Yeah. They just have to circulate the oil and keep the oil cooled. That takes the heat away from the machines. And so you don't you don't go in there and it's I mean, there's fans, but it's not the typical Bitcoin mining operation where it's just that unbelievable deafening whirl of sound. It's a much more subdued sound there because of the thermals just in Texas. They just a lot of them have just gone that way from the start. And it's really cool looking. I was watching some videos on YouTube this weekend. <laughs> yeah, I, I have an interview from a mining farm I've been meaning to edit for weeks now. Hopefully I'll get it done next week. I mean, oh, it was, cool. It was fascinating. Well, if you're trying to save power or you've got power to spare, there's a self-hosting solution for you. Check out selfhosted.show. It's a podcast I do over at Jupiter Broadcasting. It's really all about self-sovereign data. Sometimes it's a Raspberry Pi that's a solution and sometimes it's a big x86 box. But whichever direction you go, the self-hosted show will give you ideas, guidance, and a fun community to hang out and experiment with. So go check out selfhosted.show or just search for self-hosted in your favorite podcast app. Now, we promised a debate and an explanation of tarot and drive chains. But first, I just want to point everyone to a Bitcoin metrics website. This website is produced by the source of the YouTube video we linked to about Ethereum proof of stake concerns. And there's some cool bits of data here. So I would suggest going to the website, checkonchain.com and checking out this section called magic lines. Now we don't do Bitcoin price analysis or yada yada. At the same time, if you're going to do that, the only metric that doesn't seem completely stupid is the mayor multiple. So check on chain has a pretty good mayor multiple chart. And this is basically the spot price of Bitcoin. So the price of Bitcoin today divided by the 200 day moving average. A moving average is you just take the previous 200 days of price, you average them, that gives you a number, you divide the current price by that number. And that gives you a sense of the momentum sort of and the overbought, oversold quality of Bitcoin in the moment. And so if you look at the mayor multiple on this chart, you'll see that that in mid 2020 at a BTC price of, oh gosh, what was it? At 54,000, Bitcoin was very overbought, meaning according to the mayor multiple, not a great time to buy. Well, immediately it crashes down. You know, there's some value, I think, to this if you're planning big buys, but it's just something to be aware of. They also have the stock to flow motto on here. I would avoid that. It's a it's a joke. I noticed that one. I thought that was strange. No one wants to take it down. Yeah, it sure was nice to believe if you ever did. Which brings us to tarot versus drive chains. Which one should we get into first? Should we talk about, maybe talk about what these things are generally? Right. The problem they're trying to solve, which is ludicrous, dangerous, and outlandish. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Good start. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just getting fired up, you know, getting us really going. I mean, the goal is either one of them, right, is to kind of bring third-party crypto assets onto Bitcoin in a way. Like, it's to connect to other sidechains, right? Yeah, I think that there's there's slightly different. Tarot is a way of leveraging Taproot to efficiently create new assets on Bitcoin. So they could be NFTs, they could be stable coins, they could be security tokens, as in representing stocks. And not on a sidechain, necessarily. Yeah, and so they're on the Bitcoin main chain, but the killer app with Tarot is that you can lock the these assets into lightning channels. And so by locking it into a lightning channel, you can kind of move the asset to a higher layer that has lower transaction fees. Drive chains, on the other hand, is an actual side chain proposal. And what's cool about a drive chain is that unlike the liquid federation, where you need to trust a federation to hold the funds, drive chains are permissionless. You can send money in and then you can send money out without a third party who you need to trust. So drive chains are a scaling mechanism as well as unlocking new capabilities because the drive chain can have any rules. It could be Zcash on the drive chain. It could be Monero on the drive chain. It could be Ethereum on the drive chain. And what's cool about the drive chain is that the Bitcoin layer one doesn't care about the drive chain. It just sees a drive chain transaction. It doesn't need to know anything about the drive chain. And so the drive chain is kind of a controlled environment. It's separate from Bitcoin. It can provide scaling and it doesn't hurt the main chain. 
Bitcoin is the concept if it goes wrong, whereas Tarot is on Bitcoin. And is Tarot the kind of leading solution for providing stable coins over Lightning? I think so, yes. There's another proposal to create altcoins on Lightning called RGB Protocol, but I just haven't heard anything from them in a really long time. I think it's kind of a dead project. And Tarot, it has Lightning Labs behind it, so it seems likely to go somewhere. Maybe we should talk about the benefits and the trade-offs or risks of Tarot. Uh, okay, yeah, I'd be curious. So I was very skeptical of the benefits until I spoke with adopting Bitcoin because they had the view that when you have to use different payment networks, there's a real inefficiency there and it just sucks. And then I was at some like theme park almost where you had to load a card with money to then use at their stands. And it was such a terrible experience that that really stuck in my craw. And I thought, man, I get it now. Stable coins on Bitcoin would be really convenient. The cool thing about this would be you could actually have lightning channels that were dollar denominated. You'd be able to have lightning channels that could effectively pay for things like a credit card does on demand quickly. Very cool. The problem is that you are adding tokens. Their value is derived from a third party who's off chain. And that basically puts some power into the third party because the third party can now say, you know, if you do something with this asset, I'm not going to value it. This is an issue with stable coins. Stable coin issuers are always blacklisting addresses because the address is associated with a criminal or a political group that's out of favor or something. The other issue is these issuers can choose forks. So with the Ethereum merge, I think there's been a proof of work fork of Ethereum, but all the stable coin issuers said, we're not going to redeem any coins on the proof of work fork. And so that makes the proof of work fork a lot less viable because all the stable coin users have to go onto the fork that the stable coin issuer says is valid. Yeah, I like where you're going. So why is Tarot clever? Why is this more viable than, say, RGB? And I would say that it's probably more attractive because it uses Taproot and Merkle trees to sort of efficiently create assets. You're not writing any data into an op return message, so you're not burning Bitcoin to create the assets. You're constructing a more efficient transaction, and you can do clever things like create the assets and almost immediately send them into a Lightning channel because I think the stable coins, the real value is having Lightning channels full of dollar stable coins. That could be a theoretical game changer for using Lightning as a payment network right? or doing other sort of DeFi-like apps on Lightning. The idea being that the essential value that's in these channels remains fixed. That's a good point. I hadn't really thought about that much, Dad, but like the channels I open up between the nodes so that Jupiter Broadcasting can get boosts, if I open them up with, say, you know, a million sats or 500,000 sats, so a lot of these are a million sat minimum, those million sats don't actually represent the same value they did when I opened those channels. And I haven't really given that much thought because with the boosts, everything just stays as sats. Thousand sats is a thousand sats, so it doesn't really matter. But if I was trying to facilitate the purchase of real world goods, like say a burger, that's, you know, that, that would matter. I think every upgrade adds more complexity. And so it's sort of hard to imagine these things before they exist. The usefulness of technologies like this are really dependent on the tooling built around them and the wallets and how easy mm -hmm. that is to use and the sort of mm -hmm. user flows that are built out and encouraged. So I can't really comment. I mean, we can't really stop people from doing this kind of experimentation on Bitcoin. And that's sort of the point. Unfortunately, we need an upgrade to create drive chains. And so I think that that's almost the, not the negative, but that's the, the difficulty with drive chains. Drive chains require a soft fork to enable the creation of drive chains. And that's just going to spark a debate. And I think a lot of people, and I might be one of them, might say, we don't necessarily need this in Bitcoin right now. And I could see the argument if Bitcoin was the only cryptocurrency in existence in the universe, and so humanity didn't have access to some of these things, but that isn't the case. There are lots of other coins out there that are experimenting, and maybe it's not the time for Bitcoin to be doing this. Or it's necessary. Right. There could be value. Unfortunately, we ran short on time, and so we wrapped up the episode, and I'm recording this section on drive chains later. So unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to discuss it with Chris this week. So what is a drive chain? Drive chains are Paul Stork, who's a Bitcoin developer, inventor, really interesting guy. He got the idea from, I believe, a 2014 essay on sidechains. And that essay, it sort of introduced the idea of a sidechain. And a sidechain is like 
If Bitcoin is a big circle, maybe a, a literal chain in a circle, then the side chain is another circle that intersects with Bitcoin at one place. And the idea is that you can send Bitcoin into the side chain, it can do a lot of stuff, and then it can come out of the side chain and back into Bitcoin. So far, we really only have one side chain on Bitcoin, which is called Liquid. And Liquid has a lot of trade-offs so that it was possible to enable Liquid to be deployed with current Bitcoin technology. Drive chains require, I believe, two upgrades to Bitcoin in order to work. One is called Blind Merged Mining, and there's another one, which I think has some other drive chain specific upgrades. Now, why do we want sidechains? Well, we want sidechains because sidechains are a scaling method, because like Lightning, once you send Bitcoin into a Lightning channel, you can transact with it many, many times before having to withdraw the Bitcoin onto the main chain again. And Lightning inherits Bitcoin's security, which is really cool. Sidechains are similar. And if we use Liquid as an example, if you send Bitcoin into Liquid, you get to have confidential transactions and Liquid assets and all sorts of neat upgrades. And you can do all sorts of fun stuff in Liquid. And then you can come back to the Bitcoin main chain by pegging out. And this is a scaling technique because I didn't use up a lot of data that every Bitcoin node has to store forever when I did all this stuff on Liquid. The Liquid nodes need to store that data, but main chain Bitcoin nodes don't care. Okay, well, we've got a side chain with Liquid. Why do we need drive chains? And the answer is Liquid has a lot of trade-offs and the main trade-off is security. Liquid is a federation. And so there is a multi-signature address on the Bitcoin main chain that is controlled by the Liquid Federation. And you can send money trustlessly into that address because the address is known. And if you send money into that address, there's a function where you can take your transaction and show it to a Liquid node and it'll give Liquid Bitcoin to your liquid wallet. But getting out is the problem because your Bitcoin are in a multi-sig wallet controlled by the Liquid Federation. You literally gave your Bitcoin to someone else. This is the challenging part of Liquid. And this is probably why Liquid really isn't that popular because trusting the Federation is hard and you need to do a lot of complicated things to both minimize that trust and also make it more trustworthy. And we won't get into that now, but drive chains solve this problem by using a different security model that allows you to trustlessly peg in and peg out of the drive chain. And so drive chains theoretically offer scaling because all of the transactions that are done in the drive chain are not on the main Bitcoin chain. It offers trustlessness because you can send Bitcoin into the drive chain and send Bitcoin out of the drive chain without any permission, unlike Liquid. And because it's a side chain, it unlocks new features. So Paul has a test drive chain running right now. That's Zcash. Zcash is a privacy coin. Zcash has a lot of interesting technology built into it. But unfortunately, the main Zcash project, which is its own layer one blockchain altcoin, well, it's kind of garbage, in my opinion, because it was founded by a guy named Zuko. Maybe Zuko's cool. I mean, he's an original cypherpunk, but he's got got a company associated with it. He gives himself rewards from everyone's transactions to fund development. So there are a lot of bad incentives. I mean, it really looks like a worthless altcoin. That said, Zcash did develop some very interesting cryptographic primitives and technology. And with drive chains, now we can do that on Bitcoin. We can get all that cool stuff on Bitcoin and we don't even need to sell our Bitcoin and buy an altcoin. We can just send Bitcoin into the drive chain, do all the anonymous Zcash stuff, and then and take Bitcoin out again. That's very cool. Now, why don't we have drive chains? Well, I think there are a couple reasons. And I'm not going to get too deep into the technical details. One, because they're really complicated and I'm not 100% certain I'll say it exactly right. But two, I'm actually going to talk to Paul hopefully this month. So we'll get it from him. And this is more of an introduction to the concept, and maybe we can get some cool questions from the audience that will, will help deepen the conversation with Paul. But essentially, what drive chains do is there's a drive chain address on the Bitcoin blockchain, pretty similar to the liquid multisig address. But miners can spend the drive chain address. Well, they can't spend it immediately, but they can kind of spend it after three months of no other miner disagreeing. And this is a feature of the drive chain. And the idea is that you can peg in instantly, but to take money out of the drive chain, you have to queue up a withdrawal transaction, probably with a lot of other drive chain participants 
participants. And this withdrawal transaction, it has to be legitimate on the drive chain. So there's no cheating on the drive chain. It has to follow the drive chain rules but it also has to be accepted by Bitcoin miners. And the reason that it's slow to withdraw Bitcoin from the drive chain is that you know, essentially there, there is a little bit of trust involved. And it's complicated because on the one hand, trust is so anti-Bitcoin. On the other hand, to really steal from it, you'd sort of need 51% of miners collaborating for a year. And so the parameters for stealing from the drive chain seem very high. And if if you had the amount of hash power to steal from the jive chain, you could steal from a lot of other things. You could probably steal from lightning channels. You could double spend attack. And things like that have never actually happened on Bitcoin. And so I think that the security model is a little complicated and it, it kind of triggers people. And I don't know how to solve that problem. I feel like running the test software, which is something I'm working on right now, kind of begins to solve that problem to demonstrate it. And also, frankly, drive chains in many ways remind me of Bitcoin, SegWit, and Lightning, in that when Satoshi released the white paper, no one thought Bitcoin could work. Even Adam Back, who is literally cited in the white paper, who has contributed a lot to Bitcoin, literally built the liquid sidechain, the first sidechain on Bitcoin, he didn't necessarily think Bitcoin could work until he saw it. And I think that might be due to the fact that Bitcoin is a product of genius, it's not a technological innovation. It's not a cryptographic innovation. And Paul even talks about this. He points out that there really aren't a lot of scaling proposals in Bitcoin. And part of that might be due to the fact that a lot of developers are focusing on novel cryptography when the real innovation in Bitcoin was this combination of social consensus, game theory, and technology. And so I think that drive chain with its combination of technology and game theory and understanding how the Bitcoin ecosystem works is much more similar to the innovation of Bitcoin than these dumb scaling technologies like let's make blocks faster, let's make blocks bigger. It's this sort of like, I don't want to say genius. I feel like genius is a word we bandy around, but it looks like genius to me. It looks very clever. Now, since I can't quite articulate the downsides other than potentially miners could steal from it. I think there's some concern that the upgrades required to do drive chains might mess with minor incentives. Obviously, that's something that needs to be thought about very carefully. Let's talk about some of the benefits. One benefit is scaling because we can take a lot of transaction volume, move it off of the Bitcoin main chain, and obviously the drive chain nodes have to hold that data. But the thing is, drive chains don't have to be forever. You know, you could have a sunset where the drive chain, it fulfills its purpose, and after 10 years or something, it winds down and you move to the next drive chain, you throw away that data. So there's a, there's a potential for some interesting scaling happening there. The other benefit is new features. So you could have a Zcash sidechain, you could have a Monero sidechain, you could have an Ethereum sidechain. Really interesting stuff. Another interesting aspect of drive chains is that miners do get some say in letting the drive chain exist. There is a mechanism to deprecate drive chains and basically turn them off slowly over time if they're not popular and if miners don't want to deal with them. They're designed in such a way that the miners don't need to care about the drive chain. The drive chain just interacts with the Bitcoin blockchain like regular transactions. And this is this is a feature. The idea is to create a system that's firewalled away from Bitcoin and, and from all of the other drive chains and allow experimentation in a safe environment that doesn't blow up Bitcoin. It also is kind of designed to eat the lunch of altcoins, because if you have a new idea, people launch an altcoin, they raise a lot of money, the incentives are bad, and then they dump their bags and, you know, you've created a couple very rich people in the small team that created the altcoin, and all of the poor noobs and eternal September new crypto entrants who drank the Kool-Aid or got the Luna tattoo, they all get wrecked. So... Even though some altcoins might have interesting features, the financial incentives of creating altcoins are so bad that we rarely get anything good and generally the behavior is indistinguishable from financial scamming. Drive chains sort of solve that in that you can implement new features and cool things on a drive chain and you don't have to be a financial scammer. Some critics of drive chains say, well, you're missing the point because the whole point of altcoins is financial scams. Personally, yes and no. I think that that definitely became the point 
point after Ethereum launched because it was so easy to create ERC-20 altcoin scams on Ethereum. But prior to Ethereum, most of the altcoin launches really had some interesting technological design behind them. Namecoin was going to create decentralized DNS. Omni was a stablecoin and NFT protocol on Bitcoin. There are a couple that were pretty interesting. Frycoin was this weird experiment to create a demurrage fee where if you didn't spend your money, it redistributed to the rest of the people in the network. That's a wild project. Clearly a terrible idea. Nobody wants that, but an interesting uh, model. And actually the Frycoin creator was, I believe, one of the early creators of Blockstream. So what I'm trying to get at is I think that a platform that allows people to experiment with new ideas in a way that doesn't give them toxic financial scamming incentives, it's probably a great idea. And I'm completely behind it. Now let's return to the idea of drive chains versus tarot. It's actually kind of a dumb comparison. That's my fault. Tarot is a Bitcoin lightning protocol upgrade. Drive chains require two BIPs, two protocol upgrades, but they create a whole new space that might scale Bitcoin, might enable new functionality. And at this point, and I might be wrong, so I'd really love to hear from listeners who disagree or agree, but I think that drive chains are probably a really, really good idea in that for a monetary system to work, it has to work. It has to have the throughput. It has to have the features that make it useful to humans. I know that this show gets heavy on economics a lot, but one thing that I'm sort of pondering is that the dollar-based financial world worked for many years. And it didn't work great. It was unfair, but it worked for a lot of people and a lot of people who were decision makers who quote-unquote mattered politically. And so this system was kept working. Well, what's different now is that system doesn't work anymore. The last 10 years have been a complete mess of rampant inflation in some places, deflation in other places, and financial volatility as the entire system moves from money creation to money destruction at the drop of a pin. It's clearly unstable. Bitcoin might be a solution globally as a new neutral base to build economic systems and an economy on top of. At the same time, it does not have the throughput to accommodate billions of people today. And it doesn't even have that throughput if we all open lightning channels. We would we would end up with custodial lightning channels, which, you know, they, they risk replicating the permission aspects of the legacy system. And so in order to create the capacity for a future world built on Bitcoin, I believe that we need side chains and things, maybe drive chain, that increase throughput, capacity, and features in a safe way that limits exposure of catastrophic failure and experimentation on the main chain. Part of the reason that Ethereum is a hot mess is that they built a very general platform, a very general scripting language. And as a result, you can't stop people from writing terrible programs on Ethereum that you have to store in every node forever and that can crash nodes because they use too many resources when they run. This is the initial Ethereum DAO that was a smart contract that was supposed to make people rich and ended up getting hacked and a lot of people lost money. So I think that this is a longer term project in Bitcoin. It's really interesting and I'm going to bring it up some more. So let me know if... (laughs) Uh, you hate it or something. Anyway, back to the show. Okay, which brings us to Boost. Uh, True Grit sent in, and first of all, let me apologize. The Lightning Node has been down, setting up monitoring, so that shouldn't happen again. So sorry if you couldn't send in a boost. Uh, that's uh, that's on us. We forewent all those sweet boosts because of a technical difficulty. Some of them may have landed on my node. Ah, well, good. We had a thousand sass from True Grits. I love all the interviews. Still working on catching up on my backlog. Maybe on certain weeks where Chris can't make it, you could have guest hosts with some of the people you've interviewed. That would be fun. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and that could happen. I'll be traveling soon. I know. I have some ideas for guest hosts, actually. I'll, I'll see if they're... I mean, not that... Wow, that, that came off wrong. I'm sorry, Chris. True, no, no. True Grits truly was catching up on the back catalog. 1701 Sats, Legal Trolls and Staking Lols. That episode from a little bit ago, he says, I definitely have seen an improvement in Dad's editing skills over the course of the show. Sending in some encouragement. Also, counter-argument to Jason, we shouldn't be thinking in terms of fiat. We should be thinking in terms of sats. The rest of your point, I very much agree with. I try to make I try to make up the slack in my sat. I'll try to make... I will try to make up the slack in my sat stream. 
screaming. And then he finished it off another one to me just saying uh, that he was happy I figured out that his 1701 is a reference to the Enterprise registration number. How? Very cool. I think Jason was saying these booths are pretty cheap to read on air and it'd be okay to ask for more. And we said, thanks for the encouragement, but we just like hearing from a lot of people. So we don't want to make it seem like, oh God, these guys, they charge you to talk. Lame. I, I generally like the conversations the booths kick off too. They're, they're not something we planned. They're organic. It's nice. Right. And then we have 1,024 sats, which is a kebibite of sats from Amar. Hello from Germany. Thanks very much for the content. I got to the show by following Chris on Fountain, if it interests you. Keep up the good work. Thanks so much, Amar. It does. We always like to know how you found us. So if you don't know what to boost in, boost in how you found the pod. I think it's fascinating that he found the pod through me, but not through Jupiter Broadcasting. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And then we had 3,000 sats from Backseat Lawyer. Actually, I think chain analysis is perfectly fine to consider in criminal investigations. I think so too, as a source of data. However, I agree in spirit that it shouldn't be allowed as grounds for arrest, presented to grand juries, or used as evidence in criminal trials. Totally agree. Yeah, well put. Our Blast 22 boosted in with a row of sticks, 1,111 sats. Could you guys elaborate on the master seed phrase for hardware wallets Dad was talking about a couple of episodes ago? Should I be worried that my ledger seed is potentially compromised? So we don't want to stress anyone out overly. At the same time, all of the addresses in your wallet are public key, private key pairs that are generated from a master seed, a, a master secret, which is encoded in your seed phrase for your wallet. The problem is if you receive a hardware wallet and let's say Ledger is an evil company or there's an evil person working there and they've basically created a formula for generating this master seed, then in sometime in the future, a day, a year, 10 years, 20 years, they can sweep all of those wallets once everyone's put a lot of funds in them because it turns out that your master seed phrase is actually known to some other entity. And you can get away from that by generating your own seed phrase using dice. Um, there's a previous episodes have covered this subject. I'll try to link to a previous episode where we have some tools. And that's a way of avoiding the sort of hardware wallet compromised master seed um, retirement attack. Do you need to worry? I don't know, frankly. I don't want to stress you out, but this is solved by multisig. So with a multisig, if you generate at least one of your seed phrases independently in a, in a two or three multisig, I think that you should probably be fine. But, um, you know, it's just, it's a potential issue. We don't know how serious it is right now. I guess we'll know when this is finally done by somebody because eventually it will be, I think. Yeah. Uh, I want to get Clark, I think it's Clarkian. Uh, Clarkian boosted in with 25,000 sats using Fountain. And as a result of that... Big boost. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, the Bitcoin Dad pod was on some of the top charts in Fountain for a couple of days because of that, because they're ranking now uh, on some, they have a section based on boosts as a signal. So thank you very much. Uh, and they write, great episode covering a lot of great topics. Keep up the good work. If anyone is interested in D&D &D and tabletop gaming, actual plays and product reviews by a bunch of dissidents, then check out GG No RE podcast. Just recently became a podcasting 2.0 show. And then Sir Lurks A Lot comes in with our baller boost, 101,000 sats. M -m -m Mega boost. Thank you, Lurks A Lot, very much. He says, I find myself eagerly anticipating each and every episode. Since my last boost, I have set up Podverse and an Albi wallet. I previously used Fountain. Attendant Pod was my jam, but I can't boost or stream sats there. Playing with Boost CLI, and I'll have to wait till I get to my spare time, though, because I expect Raz Blitz or Umbral, but I'm not sure. And uh, he also writes, can Albi's browser extension connect to my Umbral wallet? Yes, it can. I'll answer that right there. I love that about it. Um, And also, the numerology today is the binary for the episode number. How about that? Getting my Ooh. towel ready for episode 42. <laughs> a great reference to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, a fantastic book. Yeah, thank you, Lurks a lot. Also, thank you to everybody who boosted in under a thousand sats. Uh, I saw those messages come into my helipad, read them all, and thank you everyone. I saw a couple of people had some streaming sats on because we just got a, some blocks of like 10 sats, 10 sats, 10 sats come in and, and other other amounts, but I, 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 that's always a signal that people are turning on the streaming option too. So we see you and we thank you. Remember, you can always get in contact with the show, BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com or via Twitter at Bitcoin Dad Pod, or using a podcasting two app such as Fountain, Podverse, or Castomatic. Newpodcastingapps.com. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Saturday, September 17th, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm joined, as always, by... By me, Chris. See you on the road, everybody. 